If you live in the city, chances are you're quite familiar with the sound of traffic already. This is Hong Kong, an Asian city of about 7.4 million people. Here, tall buildings stand close to each other, making sidewalks too small for crowds. But even with its high density, Hong Kong's surfaces still crawl with street and road movements. Cars, trucks, and double-decker buses plow through the small, windy streets of Central and Kowloon. Hmm, it's true. I've lived in this amazing city all of my life. I love the hustle and bustle. We even have a word for it in Cantonese, "gosui malong." But as an environmental journalist, I'm really worried about the increasing roadside pollution and how it affects my health. Yes. I started to notice that as well. Since moving to Hong Kong and reporting on climate issues, though, I've noticed that the pollution really lingers on here. And now that the city is starting to open up more from COVID, and I'm going out more often, those seasonal allergies and random coughs are starting to come back too. Yeah, it seems like a mask in Hong Kong would soon be more than just a COVID measure if this gets worse. But you know, Hong Kong is just one of the many cities in Asia with an air pollution problem. In fact, in a recent survey of IQ Air, 199 of the top 200 polluted cities in the world are here in Asia. Whoa! Why is that? I'm not sure yet, but I do want to find out. Welcome to Clearing the Air, a whole new season from Sustainable Asia. My name is Shermaine Lee, and I'm Koa Tran. For this series, we've partnered with the Heinrich Boll Foundation to break down, you guessed it, the intractable problem of air pollution in Asia's megacities. So, which city should we start with? Well, how about one that's twice the size of Hong Kong and even hotter year-round? We're now in Thailand's capital. Bangkok's metro area is home to almost 15 million people, and as you can hear, it's also quite busy around this BTS SkyTrain station. People need to get places, and there's no shortage for ways to commute: SkyTrain, motorbikes, cars, buses, even boats. Because yes, many canals and rivers crisscross the city, offering a great way to get around fast. But despite some public transportation options. Thailand is the seventh most polluted country in the world. In 2016, 87 percent of the country's 68 million people lived in risk areas. That is, areas where the pollution level exceeds the recommended World Health Organization guideline. Half of the country's population are living in urban areas that grapple with a high concentration of vehicles. Life expectancy for the average Thai person is reduced by two years because of this. And the citizens in Bangkok, well, they are of course aware and concerned. I had breathing difficulty. COVID-19 makes things worse. I wear a mask for PM 2.5 and COVID-19 protection. It is dangerous for my health, but I have to work on the street. In the future, there should be more public space and trees. Where I work at the garden. We give free houseplants to people to increase visitor awareness of clean air. But what is the government doing about it? 
Let's start by talking to one of Thailand's leading air quality experts about some of the government policy failings that keep solutions to Bangkok's air pollution problem at bay. And later, we can discuss the sources of the dirty air that need to be targeted and changed. My name is Winaran Luli Tanon. I'm the co-founder of the Thailand Clean Air Network. The Thailand Clean Air Network is a citizen-driven group of professionals in different fields, from policymaking and academia to civil society. And in Winarin's own words, we look at which space people are not tackling, and we see that the long-term policy solution piece is the part that people are not doing much about. Winarin is frustrated with the government's short-term strategies that don't really deal with the air pollution problem. So here in Bangkok, I don't know if you've been here in the last three years, but you know when people complain a lot, they just start spraying water around, like like oh yeah yeah they go a bit mm-hmm. crazy on that. And they're like <laughs> okay, we're dealing with it, and you're like no, you're not. You're making visibility really dangerous when you're driving too, because if you go to the toll booths, they'll be spraying water. If you go to the BTS station, they'll be just spraying water, and it's like okay, people, you're not doing anything. But it's an optics, right? Um, mm-hmm. um so there's a lot of sort of uh, 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 creating a mirage of dealing with a problem when they're not. Bangkok really does deploy trucks and even drones to spray water mixed with a small amount of non-toxic chemical in an attempt to control air pollution. The hope is to reduce the amount of particulate matter down with this mist. And we're specifically talking here about PM 2.5, or particulate matter in the air that is less than 2.5 micrometers, about 3% the width of a human hair. The levels of PM 2.5 are typically used to measure how polluted the air is, because particles that small can get into our lungs and affect our health. Anyway, when we looked at this about three years ago, we looked and said, okay, okay, how do we actually deal with this? And then we looked at the skill sets that our core group had. And we said, okay, look, this issue is so broad. And what we can bring to the table is um, we all have expertise in our specific fields, and our expertise joined together can help to shape, hopefully, solutions to this. These solutions, according to Winnering, would come in the shape of Thailand's very first Clean Air Act. You know, really, what we need here in Thailand is we need a Clean Air Act, we need a much, much better environmental act, and we need an environmental protection agency, a role like that. So Thailand actually has a pollution control department, but it cannot act on air pollution alone. Sure, it can monitor emissions, but the authority to actually close down polluting factories or take other such actions to limit emissions is up to other departments. There needs to be a better structure to enable cross-department actions to be taken to reduce air pollution. So Winnerin is essentially saying Thailand needs to clearly define the mandate. Of cleaning up the air with the Clean Air Act and an agency dedicated to enforce it, and this new legislation needs to not only include the standard command and control regulations, it also needs to incorporate some incentive structures. Now we never said, okay, you shall use this technology, you shall be fined that much. No, we didn't get into all that. There's mm. no other existing legislation that deals with this, and it's a very tricky issue. But everything else, we've not imposed any any specific fines or penalties, right? We actually employ incentive structures to shape economic behavior because you you can't do this in command and control. So what happens when you don't incentivize a behavior? Well, people find a way around it. Let's take the example of agricultural crop burning. Well, it's being called the toxic haze. For weeks, northern Thailand has been rated one of the most polluted regions in the world. The Buses, industry, and people burning incense sticks are much the same all year round. 
but the smoke and haze problem is mostly limited to just the months between December and April. So why? Up north, they say thou shall not burn starting from usually the burning season is about now. So March, April, May, usually rough. February, March, April, and sometimes running. So they, so every year they're like, okay, thou shall not burn. The KPI or all governors is no burn sites, right? Or no mm-hmm. hotspots. So people burn earlier. <laughs> so they just displaced the problem. And it's worse because you're burning in the time where, where we're getting higher pressure because it's the cooler season mm-hmm. where the stuff you're burning isn't dissipating at all. So you're basically breathing the stuff you're burning. Winner in here touches upon a very important contributor to air pollution, crop burning. This refers to the practice of setting a controlled fire to cultivated fields, clearing it of crop debris, and preparing it for the next crop cycle. It may be cheap and efficient, but the smoke can accumulate and travel over long distances, affecting the air quality and contributing to PM2.5 pollution. Instead of managing the burn system, trying to understand why people are burning, deal with the heart of it. And, and some of it does make sense. For example, mm-hmm. um, forest fire experts have told me, you know, you cannot tell people not to burn any of this stuff for years. And they had a, I think they had an effective, tried to have an effective thou shall not burn policy in for about a couple of years. And then by the third year, it was crazy. Like forest fires, this, that, oh my God. You know, Chiang Mai hit the list as the worst city in the world for air pollution, you know? And I understand from the forest part of it, there is an amount of like, you know, dry leaves and twigs and stuff that fall down naturally, right? (laughs) And that needs to be managed. So Bangkok and Thailand as a whole too would be better served with specific laws that define clean air goals and actions. More interagency cooperation is desperately needed, or better yet, a dedicated government agency to have oversight of the new laws. Finally, including incentive structures alongside command and control policies can also be an effective tool for new regulation. Well, you can't manage what you can't measure. If the government is going to improve its policies, it needs to know specifically the sources of Bangkok's dirty air, based on scientific measurements and data. I'm Sulat Buolet. I'm a lecturer at Kasetsat University. Right now, I'm a dean of the faculty of environmental faculty. Dr. Buolet has a background in meteorology, the study of weather. This is how he got into studying air pollution. I got the project that is my reputation for, for this area. We call the project is CAP. We fund by Thai government, mm-hmm. uh, National Research Center. Dr. Bullet's project CAPE, or C-A-P-E, roughly stands for characteristics of atmospheric profile and its effects on variation of air pollutants in Thailand. The research was published in 2009, and back then in Thailand, it was common for researchers to measure air quality only at the breathing zone, that is, where there is human activity and where people breathe. Dr. Boulet, however, decided to go beyond that. In the first time, we used high-rise building to sample the air. For example, in Thailand, we got Bayok building, that's high-rise building, the highest building in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. It's around 300 meters from the ground. And we used the roof of, of the, the, the building to collect the air, collect the sampling. 
and we also do like that in Hat Yai, south of Thailand, mm-hmm. and the north of Thailand, Chiang Mai as well. Oh, okay. We we do it three of them, uh, Bangkok, Hat Yai, and Chiang Mai, at mm-hmm. that time, twenty years ago. At this point in the call, Dr. Boiler begins to dive deeper into his PowerPoint about his measurements and data sampling. Not gonna lie, it's very detailed. But what's important to note is that he set up rooftop devices in three different cities, and he measures things like carbon monoxide and particulate matter in the air. PM10 was the standard back then. He also records weather data like temperature and wind profiles. In the last few years, though. Dr. Boulet and his team also built the KU Tower on his uni campus in Bangkok. The tower was equipped with more modern tools and allowed him to make better measurements, including measurements of PM 2.5 levels. We got five level of the meteorological equipment at 10 meter, 30 meter, 50 meter, 25 meter, and also 110 meter. That Uh, level, we got the equipment to measure wind, temperature, and also other parameter for the meteorological condition. <laughs> and we also have three level of sampling at 30 meter, 25 meter, and 110 to collect the gas, say like the carbon monoxide, uh, oxide of nitrogen, sulfur dioxide, and ozone from that three level. And also for the PM particulate matter. Mm-hmm. So for the meteorological data and also for pollutant data, we can combine and look at the pattern of the of the air pollution in Bangkok. And what have you found so far? What do the results tell you? For the particulate matter PM 2.5 in Bangkok, now we can classify to four pattern of them. The first pattern it should be something like the particulate after midnight because after midnight the temperature will be low and the relative humidity will be high. The peak will be at that time because it's colder at night. Yes. The particles are bigger because it's, bigger. it's cold and the relative humidity will be mm-hmm. high. Oh. So when relative will be high. The small particle absorb the moisture in the oh, air and That's become bigger. Big. Yes, that's right. I see. Okay. That that one is the first pattern that we found, mm-hmm. and the second one is the pattern that occur from the temperature inversion. To picture the effects of a temperature inversion in Bangkok, think about a lid being closed on a container. The air in Bangkok is colder at night and stays still. Above the city. Air still moves around thanks to winds. This air happens to be warmer, and when it is above Bangkok, it acts as a lid, preventing the colder air from leaving. The pollution is essentially trapped. This colder air that stays in place contains particles that absorb moisture and become bigger during the night. Essentially, what we have is warm air trapping air that gets even more polluted as the night chills. Dr. Boilet refers to this as the stable pattern, but this begs the question: Where does this warm air above this stable air come from? We call it as a transboundary mm-hmm. pattern. The particulate matter is come from that area and move long, long range of them from the source to Bangkok. Okay, so now that we've got some of the air pollution patterns down, stable and transboundary. 
What do we do with that information? Well, Dr. Boylet recommends looking at air pollution from a seasonal perspective and developing solutions for different times of the year as weather conditions like rain patterns and wind directions change. It should be worse for the air pollution because the wind comes from northeast of Thailand. After that, the winds come from southwest of Thailand. The wind is bringing our fresh air from southwest mm-hmm. to Bangkok. To be clear here, the northeast of Thailand is further inland, where agricultural burning is happening. So from November to April, the pollution is worse because the wind comes from there. In other months. The wind comes from the southwest of Thailand, where fresh air from the sea is. What about the crop burning earlier? What could be done there? The light of the land is not belong to the local people. That's why they grow something like corn. That when they finish, they can burn because not the land is not themselves. But if we change the concept, if they can grow tree fruit, that they can take care. So then they can take care of that land, not to burn. So give ownership of the land back to the people, in the hope that they would better take care of it than the government. That's what Dr. Bellet thinks could be done to limit these burnings. Now, what about other sources of air pollution specific to Bangkok? What is the government doing about them? It's come from the diesel. Right now, in fact, I think the government they take care quite good for that one. They would like to control the quality of the fuel by using the Euro 5 standard for the fuel. But one thing that I always ask the people, even though you you use a good quality of the fuel, but the number of vehicle of the car is increased in the rate of higher than other country. So it's not equal. It's mm-hmm. still high. Yes. That's why the diesel is still be a problem with Bangkok. So we know the solution would have to do with pushing even harder to limit diesel engine usage. Air pollution problem is not just one ministry to take action. Sometimes they involve more than one or two or three ministry. For example, I asked a Thai government mm-hmm. to take off the car from the road. They said we cannot. We cannot do like that because they got their right to drive car. So. That is maybe is not the the duty of the pollution control department because this duty is depend on transport ministry. Mm. You know, it's it's such a big it's such a big problem that involves uh, all the ministries. Yeah. In the end, Dr. Weller didn't give me such a straight answer, and I get it. It's hard. He no doubt sees the problem of air pollution, spent years measuring and studying it, and has some ideas on how to solve this. But how can we get the government together to work on these solutions when it seems that all its departments don't have a clear idea of what to do within their mandate? Well, if you remember, at the start of the episode, we talked about a clean air act that could force these departments to coordinate all this action. Let's get back into policymaking and why enacting a new law can be quite challenging. 
Every year, what often comes with the cold breeze in Thailand is unfortunately the air pollution. Especially um, it's giving a voice to people PM who are professionals, who have knowledge and the skill to be involved from the very beginning. So from um, setting up the policies, regulating, as well as managing this, this process. So how exactly does the Thailand Clean Air Act Network push for this Clean Air Act to be adopted? I mean, only the government can pass laws, right? We've used an avenue in, in, in the Thai constitution mm -hmm. that um, enables um, Thai citizens to supporting drafting um, legislation on issues that are of public interest. It's a bit unfortunate so far that the sort of the mind frame that we've received has not been as open. I think there's a general feeling of, you know, civil society that not doesn't have the avenue to really be pushing for policy changes, which is unfortunate. As of October 2022, the draft of the act is still pending. It is available for all Thai citizens to read and comment on, something Winnerin strongly encourages. This brings us to the last idea about air pollution we want to tackle. The idea that civil society in this part of the world doesn't have the same opportunities as civil society in more developed and so-called liberal democracies around the world. Part of the reason we chose to focus on Asian cities is to showcase this challenge. As Winnerin puts it, Thai civil society isn't used to taking matters into their own hands, something it may need to do more to improve its air quality. I think it's a rare concept in Thailand mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for citizens to have, a, to have a seat on the table on issues like this, or on, on most issues actually. What we're trying to say is, this problem is so big. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's so complex, right? It requires so much. Um, I think um, I think one of the things that we're facing with is is a big paradigm issue, um, mm -hmm. a sort of a mind frame issue, to be frank. And so, Winnerin's organization, in putting together the Clean Air Act and reaching out to all sorts of people, is trying to model what Thai civic participation could be like specifically to deal with that mindset of feeling unimpactful when faced with bigger issues. Winnerin isn't alone in her battle, though. This mindset issue she was alluding to has been gaining grounds globally among the youth. Climate activists like Greta Thunberg have pushed for a more active stance on climate change, a shift in our current mindset. And the youth in Thailand? Well, they might also be on their way to finding their voice. I read something about Greta Thunberg, and um, which I wasn't like a big fan of her of anything at the time. I thought she was inspiring, but it wasn't anything too big. This is Lin Ocha Ronchai. She started what would become Thailand's first and largest youth climate strike in 2019. But then I read that article in particular, and it was like she talked about how she was depressed and um, it was so frustrated over things, and that to me was like very emotionally relatable you know where every day I write about this stuff I care about this stuff but none of the people around me seem to care even though like our burn our, our world was was <laughs> visibly burning down to me and so when I read that I just felt really I felt really empowered to do something but maybe rather than empowered to do something I felt guilty for like oh maybe you know in journalism maybe I just like the blogs I write and stuff that's just complaining as well on the internet um Whereas maybe I should do something that's more tangible. So that's when I decided to do the climate strike. And that's, that was where it started. Um, within that week, I just organized something kind of by accident. I didn't realize people would actually come and they did. 
So I created a Facebook event because that was easy enough, and I thought, like, okay, um, yeah, climate strike. Don't go to school, don't go to work, easy. <laughs> But I, I didn't really think about, like, the March protesting type stuff, and then people started messaging me. I shared it on my Facebook, um, and more people started sharing it in my, in my social circle, and then also the people at Greenpeace who I had known from my internship, They started sharing it, and, and that went, that started to spread really quickly within a few days. And so by Wednesday, I'm like, wow, okay, this is actually something. And by Friday, I had a, a vague plan of what to do. And yeah, I borrowed a megaphone from Greenpeace. And at that time, I didn't even know what to say. I, I just knew that I had to say something. <laughs> so yeah, the, the people at Greenpeace, They were super supportive, um, and they were there to, to document it. Lin says she returned the next day to protest some more, but this time she came better equipped with what to say. Among her demands was a declaration for climate emergency from the government. The protests kept going, and... It only took like three or four months to get a letter back. <laughs> but they did reply, and I, I was quite unsatisfied with their response because it was a lot of like oh yeah we're already working on this we're think we're considering this right now or we've already done this we've analyzed the, the the feasibility of it and it's not currently feasible for thailand so we'll think about it later that kind of response you know so so not like a tangible next step that they're they're actually gonna do these days Lynn is focused on climate storytelling for various climate organizations. We caught up with her in her home in Thailand's countryside, away from the bustle of Bangkok. Her stance on how she can contribute to the fight for climate change has matured. I've learned about effective activism since I've kind of taken a step back from that street activism. I feel like I've not been active in the climate strike um, protests. Because I've needed this year or two to actually learn more about it. I think number one is know what you're saying. <laughs> is to really, really know for one the facts, which I feel like I did. I studied climate policy and I studied all the climate science for a very intense period. But I feel like that's just a very important thing, first of all, and also study the political landscape of things. One thing's for sure, as Lynn said, to make a difference with climate change or air pollution or any other environmental issues impacting life in Thailand, you have to be able to understand and maneuver within the country's political landscape. The government's response to Lynn's climate strike reinforces the growing skepticism of Thai youth. For activists like Winnerin, this speaks to the government's inability to resolve these complicated issues. Perhaps this is a hopeful sign that the seed has been planted in this growing generation to reshape society's mindset for the better. This is the first episode of a podcast series looking at air pollution in Asia's megacities, and it turns out a lot of the issues are similar. Bangkok's air pollution inversion, caused in part by agricultural burning in the country and strong seasonal winds. 
can also be seen in other mega cities. And the civic activism leading to change to get the government moving to solve the intractable air pollution is a subject that we will start with in our next episode. That's right, we are moving south to Jakarta, Indonesia, where civil society strikes back and takes the government to court in an effort to avoid a generation of children growing up without ever seeing a blue sky. Jakarta is the 12th most polluted city in the world, and in the next episode, we find out why. Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners. I'm Marcy Trent Long, and I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Your hosts for this episode were Koa Tran and Charmaine Lee. Koa Tran also produced this episode. Avery Choi was the sound engineer, and Jack Lee was the associate producer. A big thank you to our guests, Winarin Luli Tanonda, Dr. Surat Puellert, and Lynn Ocharanchai. We couldn't have made this podcast series without the support of the Heinrich Boll Foundation, a green think tank from Germany with more than 30 offices around the world. We enjoyed working with the Bangkok, New Delhi, and Hong Kong offices to produce this series. Check out the Heinrich Boll Foundation website links on our show notes and learn more about their insightful and thoughtful work across the Asia region. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. On to the next episode. Thank you.